This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each episode on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome again to Bradbury 100. At the time of recording, it's July 2021, so we're rapidly approaching the 101st anniversary of the birth of Ray Bradbury. Time flies when you're having a global pandemic. This week, my guest is a creative writer and scholar who has written novels and two books about Ray Bradbury. He's Steve Gronert Ellerhoff co-editor of Exploring the Horror of Supernatural Fiction, Ray Bradbury's Elliot Family, and author of Post-Jungian Psychology and the Short Stories of Ray Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut. Steve has also written an article on what he's called Ray Bradbury's Afrofuturist Stories. And this brings our discussion, as you'll hear later, to the tricky issue of race. Now, I'm going to say up front that I am anti-racist, and I firmly believe that Ray Bradbury was also anti-racist. You'll understand why I make that statement in a moment. You see, Ray left us several stories which today are quite uncomfortable to read. What I'm referring to here are the stories Way in the Middle of the Air and the Other Foot, two stories from the early 1950s which depict black Americans going to Mars. A few months back there was an interesting discussion of these stories on Facebook in the Ray Bradbury fan club group. A number of people wrote that they found the stories racist, and an almost equal number said no, those stories are anti-racist. Those who said the stories were racist pointed to the language being used. The N-word appears in there, and quite a bit of other racist terminology. But those who claimed the stories to be anti-racist, myself included, pointed to the intent of the stories, or the, the moral lesson of the stories. Way in the Middle of the Air is basically a big F.U. to white supremacists. The black people in the story have had enough, and as one, they head off to Mars to start again, leaving the racist white folks to stew in their own juices. So the intent, the moral, is anti-racist. But I can't deny the language that Bradbury uses in this story. And I absolutely recognise that that language shocks today. I can see what Bradbury was doing trying to capture the racism of the racist characters in order to lampoon them, but it doesn't make the story comfortable to read today. Certainly I don't think any author writing today would use such language, but of course these stories are a product of their time. From that online discussion I came to realise that it may be possible 
for a work of art to be both anti-racist and racist at the same time. Now, I said that I consider Bradbury to be anti-racist. Why do I believe that? Well, as I say, the intent and message of these stories is anti-racist. Our sympathies are clearly supposed to be with the black characters and the racist characters are objects of scorn. There is also evidence in the biographies of Bradbury that indicate that he was anti-racist. And importantly, he was anti-racist at a time when it was very difficult to be that. These stories were not easy to publish. They were challenging in their time. And we'll hear more about this from Steve Ellerhoff in the interview later in the show. Way in the Middle of the Air is missing from some editions of the Martian Chronicles, where it's replaced by another story, The Wilderness. All this came about in the 1990s, when Bradbury updated the book. He shifted all the dates in the book further into the future, because the real world was rapidly catching up with the book. You may recall that the original Martian Chronicles begins in 1999, but the revised version shifts the events to 2030. Some readers, noticing the absence of Way in the Middle of the Air, assume that this was censorship. But this is far from the case. What actually happened was that Bradbury himself believed the story to be outdated. But not because of the language. It was because he believed that the story, written long before the civil rights movement, had been completely overtaken by events. Bradbury's view was that The car, the motor car, is what actually gave black people the freedom of movement that he had depicted fictitiously in the story. In a 1968 interview with William B. Allen, he said the car had given freedom to black people so they could, quote, move through our society. And he went on to say that the car has simultaneously destroyed us through smog. Ray was never fond of cars, and he, uh, in fact, condemned them as killing machines. So, as early as 1968, he felt that in real life, cars had provided the liberation that, in the Martian Chronicles, had required rocket ships. So, in the 1990s, when the opportunity arose, he took the decision to remove way in the middle of the air. But the story is still available, it's not been censored. And, in fact, most recent versions of the Martian Chronicles have, in any case, reverted to the original 1950 text, which contains Way in the Middle of the Air. Now, let's get to that interview. Steve Grohn at Ellerhoff gives us some fascinating new angles on those race-themed stories, but that's only a small part of the interview. We also talk about many other aspects of what makes Bradbury relevant today. Joining me today is writer and bookseller Steve Grohn at Ellerhoff. Steve knows a few things about Ray Bradbury's fiction, having written one book about Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut, and having edited another with Miranda Corcoran, who was a previous guest on this podcast. Steve, welcome to Bradbury 100. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Tell me, Steve, what was your first encounter with Ray Bradbury's fiction? Well, uh, I think I'm kind of a weirdo as far as that goes. I think I'm an outlier because I didn't read Ray Bradbury 
until I was 27 years old. Uh, and I think many, many people probably read him when they were much younger. Is that the case with you? Yeah, nearly everybody I've spoken to says they were 12 when they first yes. read Bradbury. <laughs> yes, that's why I'm I'm a total weirdo. Um, and I remember being in school and hearing about other classes reading his books. I remember in ninth grade hearing that other classes were reading Fahrenheit 451. Um, and for some reason, I missed him. And so when I was... Uh, 27, I was working on a novel about time travel, and I was visiting some friends in England because I had done a creative writing master's degree at Lancaster University, oh. and I was visiting my old friends, and Molly Baxter, uh, one of my course mates, she said, oh my gosh, you're writing this time travel book, you know, you need to read A Sound of Thunder immediately. And then that was backed up quickly by our former instructor, George Green. And I picked up a copy and then just completely fell into Ray Bradbury. The gateway for me was the short stories. Oh, my gosh. I feel like ever since it was sort of like a, a game of catch up. There's an odd kind of grief to first reading Ray Bradbury when you're 27 years old because <laughs> you realize, oh, my gosh this writer could have been my friend my entire life and I wish he had been. And so I think my relationship to his writing really comes out of that feeling of, I can't believe what I missed out on for so long <laughs> and, and hoping to correct that. <laughs> so what happened to that time travel story that you were writing? So I wrote this novel about time travel. I ended up publishing it myself and it's called Time's Laughing Stocks. Uh, it's it's about the American father of time travel, who sort of turns out to be not quite such a great guy at the end of the day. He, he sort of made a ruin of his life despite pursuing this amazing thing. And he's burned all his bridges. And the only people he can think to impress are his 12-year-old self. He's been to the future. He's seen the biopic about him that won the Oscar. He He doesn't like it. So he decides to also take the actor who's going to portray him on a tour of time before he portrays him, thinking it might change his performance. <laughs> so, yeah, he takes this actor from the future and his 12-year-old self on, on a tour, thinking he's really going to fix everything. And, well... <laughs> uh, yep, we'll have to read the book to find out. <laughs> there you go. But, um, you know, I mean, definitely heavily influenced by Bradbury after that. I mean, when I sounded thunder, like I said, it's a gateway. And I just inhaled Bradbury. There was probably a year where I just I just read everything I could. Did you ever read the story called The Toynbee Convector? Oh, yes. That's the thing with his stories. There's so many of them... <sighs> It's almost like the Beatles and their songs. The Beatles have a, uh, practically have a song for everything you could be feeling. <laughs> Bradbury, the same sort of thing. He's got stories for almost every situation you could dream up or or be going through. Or he's got you covered. If if you if you keep reading, you'll find it. You go, oh, good. This story, yes, that resonates with this. You you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and if he hasn't written a story about it, he'll have written an essay about it or some magazine article or something. There's some article he wrote about American football, and John Eller, 
the biographer, who I, I believe you, you know, John tells me that Ray had no interest at all in American football. But he wrote this article because he was commissioned to write it. So, you know, like a good professional, he, he, he wrote the requisite number of words and it's quite a good article. But uh, yeah, he, he was up for any, any subject under the sun. I think he lived long enough that he could cover everything there was. Yeah, that's amazing. There came a point, presumably then, when you came to study Bradbury. So other than just being a writer who was being influenced by Bradbury, you were, you were studying him as well. What happened there was I'd been working in a toy store in Portland, Oregon. I was the director of wind-up toys, and, and I enjoyed that. I, I worked there for five years. It was a great job. I got a lot of writing done and, and reading done and everything. <laughs> but I, wanted, I felt I wanted to sort of bump things up in terms of scholarship. So I decided to go back to school. The initial idea was that I would study Kurt Vonnegut's short fiction, but uh, what had happened, of course, is that I had fallen in love with Ray Bradbury's short fiction. So I, I contacted Philip Coleman at Trinity College Dublin, asked him, sort of pitched what I would like to do. Mm-hmm. He was incredibly welcoming and said, you know what, come come on aboard. We would love to to have you study here. So what ended up happening, I was 30 at the time. I jumped into both Vonnegut and Bradbury's short fiction. I was really curious about what their work had to do as being a mythology for their own time, mixing the fantastical elements, taking bits and pieces from what was going on in science and technology, as well as culture, and then trying to come up with these stories that would help people metabolize some of the experiences that they were going through in in the shifting changes of the times. Mm. That's how it all became academic on my end. Mm -hmm. It it sort of went from that, you know, being influenced as a creative fiction writer into my work as a creative academic, really. Mm -hmm. It was a nice pairing, you know, Um, a foot in each camp. And and how do you see Bradbury and Vonnegut as being connected if if at all and presumably you do see see them as connected otherwise you wouldn't have studied both together but what what is the connection for you i think a big part of it came down to foremost their broad appeal their wide wide appeal you know they they became very popular writers and bradbury was a popular writer long before vonnegut was and then vonnegut became an extremely popular writer himself and people almost played catch up with Vonnegut because he'd been publishing for years. Hmm. So there was that. There was also the way that they would often get categorized as being science fiction writers. Hmm. And yet they both sort of resisted uh, that label, you know, Um, Vonnegut called it a drawer that's been mistaken as a urinal by by <laughs> by critics i i remember there was a was it martian chronicles the first edition there's something on the cover that says you know great new science fiction novel by ray bradbury and he was like eh, yeah uh you know <laughs> no don't do that and even then there were other science fiction writers i remember reading who were saying ray bradbury is not a real science fiction writer and and all that so they both have this odd liminal reputation 
around the way they were being categorized. And they kind of exploded categories, too. They mm -hmm. didn't limit themselves to one mode or genre. Yeah. Bradbury covers, oh, he covers so much more than Vonnegut did in his short fiction, especially. You know, he published 400 short stories. In his lifetime, Vonnegut published 40. So that's 10 times wow. the number yeah. of short stories. <laughs> I hadn't realized it was so few, actually. But I guess yeah. Vonnegut very quickly became a novelist. And I, I guess once he was established there, he kind of didn't go back to short fiction very much, did he? That's right. He he really has this interesting divide in his career where he pictured himself, I think, as retiring from short stories right. and... It, it's that kind of snooty, awful attitude of the novel is king. You yeah. know, it's a, it's a horrible attitude. And it's it was prevalent and it remains prevalent. Of course, at the time, you also had the problem of the short story markets drying up yeah. with yeah. Uh, television, with advertising going from magazines to TV. You know, it was like bye bye short stories. So that that played a role. Ray Bradbury kept writing short stories. I know, I mean, you've been an advocate for the study of Ray's stories that he kept writing through the latter part of his career. Yeah. He never gave up on the form. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it, it could be argued that it's because he was not very successful as a novelist. He really struggled to, to write at length about anything. Again, it goes back to that novelist king attitude it, it's such a funny thing that that would be seen as a problem mm. you know what i mean i find that so curious and unfortunate because the stories are are amazing and the short story as a genre and a form is astounding and astonishing you've done so much great work especially with the adaptations to television and there's something about the short story that lends itself to adaptation so much better than a novel. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Unless people overinflate them, which is what they tend to do. So they will take the perfect short story, A Sound of Thunder, and then they'll decide, well, it's got to be two hours long to be a feature film. So they start pumping it full of this other rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rubbish. <laughs> yes, is exactly it. Yes, um, that's uh, the that's the pitfall, right? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely it. But what Bradbury was able to do himself was adapt them in short form. So he he did turn some of them into full length screenplays, but with his TV series, he was turning them into just these twenty four minute pieces, which is almost perfect for his short stories. Or he would turn them into one-act plays. Not not full-length plays so much, although he did a few of those. Mostly one-act plays. Because he knew that's the, the proper length for the story. In a way, he was a master adapter. And knew that, uh, that there was a lot of fun to be had in playing with his old ideas and reworking them. And so, some of those adaptations are really quite inventive. Some of them are not, but some of them really are inventive. Yeah, that's that's beautiful and amazing. That kind of versatility. And then I mean even also too in in the UK, I remember when I first got there to study creative writing, I was amazed at the presence of radio plays. Oh yeah. Because yeah. it's something in America that just we don't do. Yeah. And it's it it's to our collective loss creatively and artistically that we don't have this tradition that you have. 
yeah. of the radio play. And the Bradbury radio plays are incredible too. Yeah, again, the the sort of perfect length. We're talking half an hour. And obviously people who do those kinds of adaptations, they, they will carefully choose which stories to adapt. They'll go for the ones that firstly will fit that exact length, but also the ones that depend on character or depend on dialogue, stories which are usually intimate, because those are the ones that work best in radio drama. But you're absolutely right, the, the British tradition of radio drama is unbroken from the beginning of radio back in the 1920s right through to the present day. There's relatively little radio drama being made nowadays. Uh, there is still some, and it's done on a daily or a weekly basis by the BBC. And elsewhere in the world, that's really gone away. So, yeah, it's great that we have a, a, a tradition. It's under threat, unfortunately. Uh, but it is great. Yeah. I hope that can keep going, because... Yeah. I remember just being able to tune in. And I mean, now with streaming, to have that there is incredible. And I know people, some of my classmates wrote radio dramas that, mm. that got produced and, and all the Absolutely. rest of it. It was like, this mm. is a thing that can happen. This is, And it was astonishing to hear the production, you know, to go from reading it in class on a, on a, in a workshop on paper and then to hear the finished thing and all the care going into the sound and all that. Such, it's amazing and you know that theater of the mind ray bradbury's stories lend themselves so much to creating your own vision of the future really and it's funny i i was very aware studying his stories that i was reading them in ways that had to be completely different in some cases from the ways they were read when they were first published mm. i think it was the happiness machine in the saturday evening post story about this dad just working long hours in in the garage building this machine that'll take you wherever you want to go and all that his wife sits in it and of course she comes out stricken with grief because it it made her so happy and then she has to come back to life as it is and all that and just it's an it's sort of amazing technology well one of the ads in that magazine at the bottom of the page is for the newest technology out. You're not going to believe it. It's a two-slice toaster. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. How would I have imagined this story when it first came out? Being someone excited about being able to buy an appliance where I can now toast two slices of bread. Compared with, you know, now, I mean, we're, we're speaking across the world. Right now, you and I, I mean, our relationship to technology is totally different. So just the way we imagine technology, imagine anything, really. It's so cool to see that his stories have the staying power. So many things can have changed, and yet the stories still speak to us. They still spark the wonder. And in things like adaptations, there's still so much that can be done. There's still many, so many sound effects that can be used that just open that theater of the mind. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you should say about the, the ads appearing alongside the stories. Often, particularly with Bradbury, you get a piece of artwork that's been commissioned for the story. So that immediately presents you a pre-designed mental image before you've even read a word of it. But then there's also the context that the story sits in. Like, is it is it on page one of the magazine or is it hidden away? 
is it forefronted in the table of contents or is it just something that people will discover as they leaf through and then the the thing that really gets me with american magazines is the ads saturday evening post and typically you might get a double page spread for the beginning of the story and then it will say continues on page 57 <laughs> And you go to page 57 and you've got a column of ads, a column of text, and then another column of ads. And it's it's so disrespectful to the story. And yet those stories still speak to people when they read them. It's amazing. Even that second page you get to, you're likely going to find another go to page 65. (laughs) After that, it's like a choose your own adventure. It's so strange. That physical, tactile act of reading those stories. And of course, yeah, that large format as well of those magazines and much yeah. bigger than today's magazines and, and yeah, everything yeah. different experience back to uh bradbury and vonnegut there was a time in the 1980s when they both had tv series being produced by the same company atlantis are you familiar with the vonnegut tv series yes yes the welcome to the monkey house mm. what do you think about um, it's funny because i remember at the time being in school And I think I was in fifth grade, maybe sixth grade. And my best friend's parents were really eager about watching it. They're like, oh, tonight, Welcome to the Monkey House is going to be on. I think I saw a couple episodes and was like, okay, you know, as a kid, it didn't catch me. Mm -hmm. And then I did return to them when I was working on my PhD. And again, it didn't really catch me. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the, um, the sort of opener with Vonnegut sort of opening stray doors in a white room and just nonsense coming out of the doors. <laughs> An interesting contrast itself to the opening of Ray Bradbury Theatre and all that, you know, with him going into his office and fetching here and there from <laughs> the things surrounding him. I don't think it was terribly popular because it just ran for a season, didn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's that thing, sort of what we were talking about earlier, there were a lot fewer Vonnegut stories than Bradbury's stories. Mm. And was it that he Vonnegut himself was not adapting the stories? Is that correct? I think that's right, yeah. Bradbury yeah. wrote all of his scripts, but I think Vonnegut allowed other people to do the adaptations. So he was really just the host of the show and the source. But I have to say, I never knew the stories well enough to know whether they'd been adapted well to the show. I assume not, but I don't know. <laughs> They went off in directions mm. that were not faithful to right. the story. Yeah. There's one, All the King's Horses, for instance, uh, Vonnegut's story. The adaptation of that is really weird. It's very much a Cold War story anticipating what was going to happen in Vietnam. Uh, it's prescient in some ways. It's a, a story that is quite paranoid of the communist influence. I mean, you get a feeling reading it with a, a touch of hindsight that Vonnegut was really writing something for the masses. Mm-hmm. Maybe something he thought could sell. It did sell in Collier's along with a lot of his early stories. And it also, it's strange as a Vonnegut story because it it definitely plays the hero game. Usually his stories, you won't necessarily get a feeling of, oh, here's the hero, the good guy. Usually he muddles things, probably because of his own experiences, you know, being strafed and bombed by the good guys Mm -hmm. at Dresden. I think that obviously had a huge effect on, on his perspective and on his art. So it's weird to read uh, All the King's Horses 
and find this early story where there's this clear good guy, there are these clear bad guys. It relies on some tropes that are, there's frankly, there's just some racist tropes in All the King's Horses. It takes place in this unnamed Southeast Asian country, which has shades of Korea, what was going on in Korea, or, mm-hmm. or what had happened in Korea, and then, but also sort of what would happen in Vietnam, like I was saying. It's just a bizarre little thing. The adaptation for the show pitches it all into Vietnam and takes it in some odd directions. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm not surprised the show, you know, lasted one season. <laughs> um, I'm also not surprised the Ray Bradbury. How many seasons of, of Ray Bradbury Theatre are there? Something like seven, I think. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a massive amount. And I, for years I've been saying no other established literary author has ever written so much for television. Now, when I say that, I have my fingers crossed that I'm correct, because there may be some other writers that I've not heard of who have done that. But I've I've looked very hard to try and find somebody who has come anywhere near that and never found anyone. People will sometimes yeah. say, what about Roald Dahl? He had a TV series. But yeah, he didn't write the scripts. Or they will say, what about Rod Serling and The Twilight Zone? Well, he was a TV writer. He wasn't an established yeah. literary figure. So I stand by this claim that Bradbury's position is unique. Yeah, I think you're, I, I mean, as far as I know, too. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to carry on saying it then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, you mentioned some race themes coming up in almost in an unexpected place in the in a Vonnegut story. I gather from something you said to me a, a few weeks ago that you've been writing something about Bradbury's use of race themes in a couple of stories. What can you tell us about that? That article, I'm told, is coming out in October in the Journal of Modern Literature. In 2013, when I first visited the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies in Indianapolis and met John Eller, I wasn't focusing on these stories, but they were on my radar. And I wanted to take a look at them. They didn't fit neatly into my PhD research. And so I sort of backburnered them. Mm -hmm. But John Eller said, have at it. Basically, he said, you know, yeah, that sounds interesting. So Bradbury has these stories way in the middle of the air and the other foot from 1949 to 51-ish. They fascinated me immediately when I first read them. Way in the middle of the air is included in many editions, but not all editions of Martian Chronicles. And it's a, a story where all of the black people in the South, the American South, secretly build rocket ships in their backyards and fly off to Mars to escape white supremacy in the United States and set up their own home somewhere else. That first story, Way in the Middle of the Air, is told mostly about especially one character, one white character, who is watching them all leave. And he is a rabid white supremacist. He's quite vicious and he is suffering a uh, crisis of identity watching all these people leave because unfortunately for him, he's kind of based his whole identity on hating these people. And if they leave, what is he going to do? It doesn't leave him with a whole lot. (laughs) And he's kind of even shown to be a terror, which is appropriate to the other white people in Mm. his midst as well. 
there's that story. Then after that, we get this second story, The Other Foot. It takes place 20 years later. It follows black characters on Mars who have set up a society. And in the meantime, Earth has undergone an atom war. I love the way they used to put things like that, an atom war. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's amazing. And those weapons still exist and everything, and we don't seem to talk about them or, or worry about them quite like we used to. And maybe we should. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there's been an atom war and, you know, almost everybody's been obliterated back on Earth. This lone rocket comes straggling to Mars, lands and outsteps a white man. And then these people sort of decide, you know, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this situation? So these stories were fascinating to me. I mean, I'm an American. I'm white. I'm so white. Um, <laughs> I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. I mean, you know. A uh, descendant of uh, Germans and Irish and Czech and who knows who else. I grew up with this stamp of whiteness, American whiteness. And so it's a fascinating. These stories sort of resonate in different ways. And I imagine if you're from different parts of the United States, it's gonna, they're going to resonate in different ways. And mm -hmm. if you're uh, if you're black or brown or, you know, uh, these stories are going to sit different as well. What fascinated me was that we had a writer in 1949, 50, 51, before the great strides of the civil rights movement, tackling issues of racism and being disgusted with racism yeah. and really being deeply offended by white supremacy. John Eller pointed out to me that Ray, one of Ray's early memories was being four years old or something and seeing the Ku Klux Klan march through Waukegan and being completely disgusted. Like even at four, his parents it, it must have impressed upon him, you know, this is wrong. And just being mystified, that, that experience stuck with him. And he explored that in these stories what is going on here and he was vehemently opposed to to racism in all its forms yeah so it's interesting to see a writer struggling with those issues in a, a science fiction context at the time mm -hmm. and they were not easy stories for him to get published at all i think other worlds published way in the middle of the air on its own as a short story and it had just appeared in Martian Chronicles in the in the first edition of that. Yeah. Uh, but before that, he had not been able to get it published on its own. Other Worlds was itself a fledgling pulp out of Chicago. So you had an editor there who was willing to take a chance, you know. Other editors, I mean, he'd chopped it around. He was very successful in even in the Slick magazines. He was starting to really make a name for himself then. And they wouldn't touch it. They said, you know, we have to we have to distribute our magazines to people in the South and white readers in the South. You know, people aren't going to put up with your little story here. So he encountered th that sort of cowardice in uh, in editorial decisions at the time. The second story, The Other Foot, got published in this thing, new story here, hmm. monthly magazine for the short story, which would was published out of France. The editor of this, his mother, <laughs> this is so funny. Uh, his, it's just, there's a little nepotism uh, chain here. But uh, the editor's mother was the editor of Best American Short Stories. 
and she had published a couple of Ray's stories. Wow, I had uh, no idea. <laughs> yeah, and then he, her son moved to France. He wanted to put out a short story journal, and it's really strange because uh, the de- it has a dedication. This is the first issue he put in the other foot, and at the start of it, this dedication, the editor says, there's no short story magazine of national importance in America today. Consequently, many talented writers have in recent years not found an outlet for their stories. It is to these writers and their work that we dedicate New Story, a monthly magazine for the short story. This was 1951. So to hear an attitude like that, there's no magazine for the short story in 1951, kind of plays with our sense of, I mean, compared to today, things were a lot better for the short story. Yeah, Ray had to get the other foot published outside the country. It later appears, of course, in uh, Illustrated Man. One thing I wondered about a lot when looking at them and poring over them and, and all that was how did black readers react to these stories? Mm. You know, I mean, there are aspects of the, those two stories where they really fall into some traps. In the other foot, I can definitely see how people might see the two main characters who are black as being caricatures of black people. Recently, there's been some talk of literary blackface, white writers writing characters of color, the inherent problems that arise when that happens. I can see that criticism leveled, especially against the other foot. Way in the Middle of the Air, I think, is far more obviously a critique of white supremacy and, and white supremacists. Yeah. So... Um, so I'm curious, like, what, well, what did, am I, am I going to be able to find out how black readers felt about this mm-hmm. at the time? The closest I could come to was the two stories got reprinted in a magazine called Duke, uh, which is pretty cool. It was billed as the black playboy of the 1950s. It only ran for six issues in 1957. So it didn't take off, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But the editor was a man named Dan Burley. And I tried to find out whatever I could about Mr. Burley. And I have not had hardly any success, which is a great heartache for me. I would love to know more about him. But he edited this magazine, Duke. It published a lot of black writers. You know, it's set up a lot like Playboy was at the time. You know, you've got fiction, you've got photograph essays and you know there's ladies and whatever uh there's cartoons and and everything he reprinted these two stories which i find so interesting the thing about the other foot is that he changed the title to the last white man and then in the table of contents he categorized it under humor and i think he's the only white writer in this issue you've got chester himes in here you've got langston hughes um amazing it's an amazing magazine um so but it's 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 fascinating to see ray accepted brought in by a black editor i mean this is not just a reader and Mm. i i mean i'm not i don't want to denigrate readers i'm not that's not what i'm saying but an editor that's someone so intimately involved with the written word with putting it out and curating the written word Um, A black editor in the 1950s picking both of these stories and then categorizing humor 
and The Last White Man. It speaks, I think, to Ray Bradbury's appeal, and I think it speaks to his goodwill. I think we can look at at those stories, especially the second one, like I was saying, and say like, oh, yeah, there's some there's some issues with this. At the same time, I think there's a recognized allyship. Yeah, there's a recognized stance saying racism is wrong. And I think today, with everything going on, especially uh, in the United States, with Black Lives Matter, with a very real white supremacist threat that has become more and more obvious, I think it's great to see a white writer in the middle of the last century taking issue with these problems Mm -hmm. and with his best understanding at the time trying to do what he could to say this is wrong i've defended the the stories well especially way in the middle of the air um along similar lines because i have seen people uh declaim it as a racist story because of the language that's used primarily it, it is primarily the language and the attitudes that are revealed but the attitudes are not the attitudes of the narrator so much they're the attitudes of the characters within the story so exactly they are they are problematic today to read simply because the language puts that barrier between the reader and the text immediately your your shields go up and you say oh it's racist and it occurred to me i i think i mentioned this to you a few weeks ago it occurred to me that the story might very well be both anti-racist and racist at the same time you know it's its moral heart is fundamentally anti-racist and it really does support or did support the idea that black lives matter that's that's really what the message of the story is black lives matter and yet because of the language and how the world has really changed drastically since the story was written it's very uncomfortable to read i i find it very hard to read today and, and it doesn't help either that in the context of the martian chronicles it sticks out as being very different from everything else that's in there and even from a logical point of view i was never able to figure out how this jim crow south coexisted with the the um what appears to be the future you know it even in 1950 that's not how the world was even in the deep south it wasn't quite that it it still had strong elements of that but it wasn't quite that so the story feels as if it's set in in, in an earlier generation than the time it was written and then it just feels so out of place with the martian chronicles how do you feel about that i feel very similar about that i mean there's the thing of it taking place on earth mm-hmm. you're sort of like why are we going back to earth <laughs> Um, after we've sort of been setting things up on Mars. My first time reading, I remember wondering, well, like, well, where did all the black people go? Like, later in the book. I'm ready to see how they're doing on Mars. I'm, I'm, and they just don't, we don't get there. Yeah. It is a funny um, thing to have dropped in. And it kind of, you know, it kind of goes to the, the way the book was put together, I think, too, being cobbled. Yeah. from stories that he had already written and thrown together to pitch a book to the publisher. I like what you say about this is the future, right? There's sort of an inherent expectation of some progressiveness socially, culturally, mm-hmm. presumably. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, what? 
What? <laughs> Wait, what year is this? I think it's interesting. Was it the Avon editions of the books that came out and the, the years were all scooted yeah. forward yeah. by a ways? And then I think that story was dropped out, wasn't it? That's right. He, uh, he took it out and he put in um, The Wilderness. Um, which oh. is sort of presents the, the 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 women's view of colonialism, so he he takes out the story which probably feels most dated of all, and then he puts in one that at least tries to give a bit more gender balance. But it's not it's not the most liberated of um, stories about women, I don't think. I exactly what you said. It is the paradox. Hmm. They can be both anti-racist and racist at the same time. Life is complicated. Stories, if they're going to reflect life, they will be complicated too, and they will inspire some complicated feelings in us as we read them. That discomfort that you talked about and the throwing the walls up and all that, I think it's a valuable experience. And I think you pointing that out is a really insightful point because when we feel that discomfort and when we feel those walls go up, if we notice them, it's an opportunity to ask ourselves, what's going on here? Yeah. Why am I feeling these things? Yeah. Where are these feelings coming from? What do they have to do with? That's the value of these stories. They present so many opportunities to sit with the paradox yeah. and to also scrutinize where we are, where we have been, where we're going, where people before us were, mm -hmm. and where they were sitting with these things. This is that's sort of one of the enriching aspects of reading and, and engaging with literature. Bradbury provides it over and over again, not just in these stories, of course, but across his work. Mm -hmm. It's funny, you know, I started working on that in 2017 when I saw what was going on. I saw there was what happened in Charlottesville Virginia with the Unite the Right rally. Then I was teaching after that. I was uh, I was teaching at community college. It came up in in our in our writing classes. Charlottesville came up. And only four of the students had had heard of what had happened in Charlottesville just a year prior, mm -hmm. and that really scared me that people were not young people were not aware of what was going on in the United States as it was happening. I thought, you know what, I'm going to go focus on these stories right now. It's just you know, the academic publishing process and all that. It's just taken a while <laughs> for it to um, for it to appear. But this stuff has been in the air definitely the last five years, I think. Just out of interest, those issues of Duke, do they have a letters column? Did readers respond to the story in the following issues? There's no letters column. I uh, think part of the thing is, you know, unfortunately it ran six issues and then it stopped, which is too bad if we had that kind of response, reader response. It would have been magnificent, like yeah. just to have that, yeah, yeah. you know. That's something I've learned to do with the old Saturday evening posts when I've found a Bradbury story in there. I've always made a point of looking at the following couple of issues to look in the letter columns. And sometimes there is a comment. The story The Velt was first published in Saturday Evening Post and somebody wrote in about it in a following issue and they put a little cartoon next to the letter. So the letter itself was not interesting, but there was a little cartoon which sort of reflected on the original story, which I would never have seen if I hadn't gone looking for the for the letter columns. Yeah, so. yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, what, that's where the research gets fun, you know? That's right, yeah, yeah. We we need to talk about the Elliot family 
because um, you co-edited that book with Miranda. Miranda's been on the show, so we've talked about it in quite some detail. But how did you come to be part of that process? I was blessed, basically, is what happened. Um, (laughs) I was very lucky. My book on Bradbury and Vonnegut short stories came out. Mm -hmm. And Miranda reviewed it for the Irish Association of American Studies. And she was exceptionally kind. So I reached out to her to thank her. Uh, I did not know her at the time. From there, we became friends. Similar interests, you know. She came to me and said, what do you think about co-editing a volume on the Elliots? There's no book on the Elliots. There should be a book on the Elliots. What do you think? And I said, oh my gosh, yes, please. Uh, Thank you for thinking of me. Let's do this. Let's put out a call for papers. Let's gather the family together. You know, let's have a a homecoming of the scholarly sort, (laughs) so to speak. It was her. We had a great time working on that. Doing the the family stories justice, I think, I, I hope. They're an important feature in Bradbury's work very deserving of their own attention and uh, the way they're sort of scattered across his works is fascinating that's how that all came to be what's your own take on the stories are are there any that you particularly like Uh, and oh and what about how he eventually put them all together i love the stories especially the early stories i mean uncle Mm -hmm. einar i think is one of my favorite stories ever the april witch you know, the traveler homecoming. I mean, they're special stories and they have that weird Illinois flavor to them as well. You know, growing up in the Midwest, it's interesting seeing those old Victorian mansions and stuff. Every one of those was a house full of vampires or the Adams family or, you know, the Elliots, basically. (laughs) Uh, As a kid, you know, having... Seeing what Ray Bradbury did with the culture of the Midwestern weirdo family was interesting to me in terms especially of where I grew up and how I grew up. And interesting in terms of populating the Midwest with some weirdness as well, which was nice. Uh, You know, it's often a, a neglected region in American literature, but uh, even though so many writers come from the Midwest, I prefer them as stories Although I like how one of the last things he did in terms of a novel was put them together and sort of unite the family in a way, once and for all. (laughs) I've got the classic question for you. I always ask this is if you were stuck on a desert island and you could only have one Bradbury item with you, what would you choose? I thought a lot about this. you know, about what, what it might be. Yeah. I like Bradbury item. I like that because mm-hmm. it opens <laughs> it up, right? And I imagine it in two directions. So here's what I was thinking. In terms of a book, if I had to pick any of his writing, I'd pick Bradbury stories, the first collection of 100 stories. Yeah. It changed my life. It's the sort of thing that would and will continue to change my life because of what's in there. Sort of what we were talking about earlier, you know, if there's a story or if there's a feeling, Bradbury's got a story for it Mm -hmm. or situation. So many stories in there and they go off in so many directions. So that is a possibility. The other possibility would be 
because I was thinking, well, what would what would Ray Bradbury want me to have if um, if he was <laughs> if if in some you know alternate dimension he was somehow involved in my being banished to a, a desert island? I was thinking possibly having just visited the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies in Indianapolis, maybe his oh, typewriter. Yeah. To um, I mean, he was such an, an evangelist for creativity and for creation Mm -hmm. maybe taking his typewriter with me would be good those machines of his channeled greatness Mm -hmm. and uh, it would be fun to just uh, keep creating on a a tool (laughs) like that but then I was thinking well but then I don't have any paper because I just have the typewriter so I could either type them onto nothing that could be interesting (laughs) that's uh that's kind of a, a Vonnegut Galapagos idea where the, the narrator of Galapagos is, is writing the novel in the air with his finger. Uh-huh. That is a possibility. But then I was like, nah, you know what? I think I would just take the book. <laughs> <laughs> I could revisit the stories. I could maybe memorize some of them. I remember reading, I can't remember who he was. There's a Russian science fiction writer. He talked about reading bootleg stories of Ray Bradbury in mm. Russia mm. and memorizing them like poems so that while he was at his job, which was quite physical labor, he could recite them to himself and they got him through the, the work day. One item, I'd take the book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why does... There's a presumption to this question, but why does Bradbury matter today? This is a great question. Let me tell you why. When I cast my net out to do a PhD and I was sending emails to people who could potentially be supervisors for my work, I received a response from one professor who told me that Kurt Vonnegut is irrelevant now. Nobody reads Vonnegut. Vonnegut's irrelevant there's no way you can get a PhD in Kurt Vonnegut. And my first thought and, and the thought that has stuck ever since is, well, I don't want to study under you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like okay. Um, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I sent that message. Um, found out that, that you have this opinion. Ray Bradbury is relevant. He matters today. Bradbury is such a gateway writer he has all this potential for people who don't think of themselves as readers falling in love with reading because of how direct and straightforward the language is in his stories how lyrical the language is in his stories readers very quickly encounter metaphors for life and the human aspect of the imagination and of science the role in science fiction of showing what technology can do and where it can go and how Bradbury is like the heart of humanity in that mix. Also in terms of his works of fantasy and and horror, I mean, Something Wicked This Way Comes is a a book that can still scare the willies out of you. You know, it's a spooky book. And I mean, it's a book about being a kid and coming to realize that there is evil in the world, that evil is a a capacity that's in each of us even. Mm -hmm. So I think in terms of, of why Ray Bradbury matters today, his stories themselves can change your life.
they can help you see things better and adapt to life better. That's definitely the effect they've had on my life. That's really good. Thank you. Finally, if listeners would like to find out more about you and your work and your own writings, uh, where can they look? I've got a website. It's www.sgellerhoff.com. And then I'm on Twitter at S.G. Ellerhoff. Are you working on anything at the moment? Any writing projects? Yeah. I work at an indie bookstore called Tsunami Books. And we're starting a, a small press. And our first book is called Cronies by Ken Babs, who was one of the merry pranksters from the uh, 1960s. You know, the electric Kool-Aid acid test is all about their oh, yeah. bus trip and <laughs> Ken Kesey and Neil Cassidy and all the gang. Uh, Ken Babs has written this memoir. He calls it a burlesque. Uh, and it's all about his adventures. And so at the moment, I've been copy editing that. And then in terms of my own work, I've got a book called Young and the Mythology of Star Wars. And then I have a novel that I'm writing as well. Wow. Thank you. Well, Steve, many thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Phil. I'm so happy to be here. And thank you for all you're doing for Ray Bradbury's legacy and for expanding the bounds of Bradbury's studies. My thanks once again to Steve Gronit Ellerhoff. In the show notes at bradburymedia.co.uk, I'll put links to Steve's books and other projects, and some links for the Vonnegut and Bradbury TV series we discussed. Now, if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. But that's it for today, and I hope you'll join me next time for another Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on YouTube and Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Dot UK.